You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. We all want security, right? Security is an important thing to us. And it's an awful thing to not have security. I mean, people go way out of their way for security sometimes. I mean, there's people that have security systems, make sure all their stuff is safe, real expensive ones. Um, people have different insurance policies. They, they go out for the, the best that they can get, whatever money can buy, to feel, if I can say, safe and secure. It is an awful thing to not have security. And yet so many around us have no security whatsoever when it comes to eternity. There are so many that are are working for their eternity, working for their salvation. Matter of fact, it's every other religion except for true Christianity that says you have to work for it. At least in some way, to some degree. Even if it's, I do my best and Jesus does the rest. Uh, I'm still adding something of myself to that. And in all of those religious exercises and all those belief systems that are there, how do you ever know you've done enough? There is no real, true security when I have to add my works. When I have to do this or that. How can I ever know I've done enough? I can't. And how do we know for sure that what we're doing is what we're supposed to be doing in order to earn our way and get there? We can't. It's only in true Christianity that we do not have to work for our salvation, that we don't have to add to our salvation, that we don't do any of the work. The work has been finished. The work is completed for us. That it has nothing to do with ourselves. And in that, we are secure. Because it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. And when you're not secure, you can be running to all different kinds of thoughts and ideologies, grasping for anything to make yourself feel secure. And so it's no wonder as we, we talk to the, the people in the world around us and all the religious systems that are there that they, they, they encompass all kinds of ideologies and thoughts and ex- are accepting of so much. Because they're willing to grasp onto whatever will make them feel better. But we don't need that. We're secure in what our God has given us. And so as we come to our text here for this morning, Paul is pressing the security in salvation. Remember, this false teaching has crept into Thessalonica. And so Paul addressed that as we went over last week. They were fearful that they had missed the rapture and they were in the midst of the day of the Lord. And Paul had told them in the first letter that he sent to them that they were not destined for wrath. Well, if they're not destined for wrath, well, what are they doing in the midst of the day of the Lord? What are they doing in the midst of judgment? And probably thinking all that they were suffering, their persecution and the other afflictions Paul mentioned that they were going through, 
We're all part of God's wrath being poured out. And so Paul was calling them as he corrected that doctrine, as he was correcting that false teaching that came in, to not be shaken in their mind and thinking, to not be agitated in their emotions and in their inner person. They were to hold to the truth. And so here, as we come into our, our passage for this morning, Paul presses their security. And that they're to hold firm to the teachings of the apostles, to the teaching that he had given them. So let's, let's look here at our passage for this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now many, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So again, as, as we look at these, these verses, we see that this passage is, is a transitioning point between two major breaks in Paul's letter, where Paul has been teaching on doctrine, specifically, again, end times doctrine, end times teaching. And he does that first, encouraging the Thessalonians to persevere in light of the future glorification and of the coming justice in Christ's return. And then last week, we went over Paul, again, bringing correction to the false teaching that had portrayed the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, as having already come. And then we come into this transition. And after the transition, then Paul will pick up with instructions for the church. But in this transition between teaching and exhortation, Paul returns to express his gratitude to God for his work in the Thessalonians. Specifically here, Paul expresses his gratitude in verses 13 through 14 for God's choosing of the Thessalonians for salvation. Then in verse 15, Paul commanded the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold fast to the apostolic teaching. And then in verses 16 through 17, we have Paul's prayerful desire for the Thessalonians. And really, again, in this whole section, we see security. Even with the infiltration of false doctrine, the true believer in Christ is anchored in the truth of Christ. And even if for a moment he wavers, the believer will not ultimately be lost. The true believer in Christ is secure. So again, in verses 13 to 14, we have Paul, Silas, and Timothy's gratitude towards God. And this is in contrast to those who, in the latter section, did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In contrast to them is Paul and his co-workers who are thankful to God. 
Verse 13 again says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. This is just like we read in chapter one, verse three, when Paul said we ought always to give thanks to God. And remember, when we talked about that verse, we said the Greek word that's translated here as ought carries the idea of a, a moral obligation. Paul said we are morally obligated to give God thanks for you. So it would be immoral. It would be wrong not to do so. They had this duty. And again, just because it was a duty doesn't mean it was joyless. Certainly, Paul joyfully gave thanks to God. And again, though, we see the same thing here. They were morally obligated to give God thanks for the Thessalonians. And why? Well, we see here that because of even despite the infiltration of false teaching, they were certain that the Thessalonians would remain true, for they were sure of God's choosing of them. They were sure. I mean, even as we've talked about the first letter to the Thessalonians, and we talked about how uh, the, these believers, uh, as new believers, babes in Christ, they were suffering such persecution, and, and initially Paul and Silas, they were concerned about them. Are they going to hold up under this persecution? So they sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. And Timothy's report comes back that they were remaining faithful. And we see, although they were not by any means a perfect church, there's things that Paul had to correct. And we see in this letter things Paul has to correct. But nonetheless, in the first letter and in this letter, we see they were able to be held up to the other churches as being exemplary. That we could follow their example. And so in their perseverance and, and in their exemplary lifestyle as a church, again, not perfect, but nonetheless faithful, Paul could see the evidence of their salvation and was sure that they were among God's chosen. I mean, look what he writes. Again, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. And how does Paul know they're beloved by the Lord? He goes on, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. God chose them for salvation. It's not, that's not a very popular teaching uh, to talk about God's choosing for salvation. Uh, but nonetheless, it is the blatant teaching, the plain teaching of the word of God. If we're going to be honest, it's kind of hard to get around it. God set his love on the Thessalonians when he chose them for salvation. So too, for all who turn from their sins and trust in Christ, they are chosen. And all who are chosen trust in Christ to be saved. And being chosen with their faith in Christ, they can rest assured that God has set their love on them. If you are trusting in Christ, if you are saved, God has set his love on you. And why did God set his love on you? Because you're so lovable, right? Just like to pinch that cheek and say, you little... No. No, that's not why God has set his love on us. It's not because of anything about us. 
but because of everything about him. God set his love on us simply because he chose us. And he chose us because he chose us. That's it. That's all there is to it. It has nothing to do with us and how lovable we are, but has everything to do with him and how loving he is. That he saves us despite ourselves. And he saves us to the praise of his glorious grace. And I know, by by nature, we want to kick back against this idea that we are saved because of God's choosing. Because we want, by nature, to add something to our salvation. To stand and say, I chose. I made the decision to trust in Christ. And so really, this this concept of of God's choosing wrecks our pride. Because the truth is, left to myself, I would never choose God. I am, like the rest of humanity, dead in my sin apart from the grace of God. So I could do nothing to save myself. And so in saving me, God gets all the credit. Because he did it all. He gets all the glory. It's his work to save. God does what only God can do when he saves. And when we understand that he saved us, and we did nothing to save ourselves, that it's his finished work from start to end, his choosing, that we are saved because he set his love on us, when we understand that, then our salvation is secure. Which is what Paul's point is. If any aspect of my salvation depended upon me, if I had to obtain it, I would never get it. And if it depended upon me to keep it, as someone else clearly said, I think it was John MacArthur, if I had to keep my salvation, I would lose my salvation. And I would. Since it's all of God and none of me, I can't lose it. So we who are saved should rejoice when we read such passages like 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10. to 10, When he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul was literally in prison because of his proclaiming of the gospel. He says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. Uh, Sometimes uh, we, we think of salvation and our choosing it. It's because of what we want. And it's about us, and, 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 and so I, I put my faith in it because I'm the one making the choice. But we see salvation, again, it's about his purposes. He saved us according to his plan. And as it says here, and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began or, or before eternity. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We also then should rejoice in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now here we read that the Thessalonians were beloved by the Lord because God chose them as the first fruits to be saved. Now here in the English Standard Version, it says first fruits. Um, there's, there's some question in the manuscript history of what words should be here. Um, and many make a good argument for first fruits. That's why it's here in the English Standard Version. But it would seem to me that there is a better argument for what the New American Standard Bible has, which is from the beginning. And so that it would read that God, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. Um, John MacArthur, his commentary, takes that position. Uh, Dr. Sallard, his, his commentary, uh, takes that as well, and others do. And so then Paul would be saying what exactly we read here in Ephesians. That God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's saying the same thing. And in any case, though, that is clearly, I mean, it's here in Ephesians too. That is biblical truth. That those who believe he chose from the beginning to be saved. That we are his chosen people. Again, salvation has no room for our pride. It has no room for us to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least I was smart enough, at least I was good enough to choose him. I guess I wasn't. <laughs> I can't say that. I can't make that claim. It's because he chose me. It's because without the converting work of the Holy Spirit, without him shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we would never seek him. We would never choose him. We would never see our need for him. We would never see our sin for what it is, an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God, and so deserving of an infinite wrath. We would never see that if he didn't reveal to us his glory. We'd never see our sin and that we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we have put our faith in Christ, if we are saved, it is nothing of ourselves. And as I've been quoting through Ephesians 2, that's exactly what we see in Ephesians 2. Verses 4 through 10 says, But God, so we were dead in our sins, children of wrath, no hope, in full despair. But God. That's, 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 that's good, right? But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice it's all what God has done. It is God who is rich in mercy. It is God who has made us alive. It is by grace, his unmerited favor, that we are saved. He, as it goes on, raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his glory, of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as Charles Spurgeon said, we're not saved by works, we're saved to works. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. Since salvation is all of God, there's nothing left for me to do but to bow my heart to his lordship and live my life in gratitude for the great salvation that he has provided. And how does Paul here in 2 Thessalonians say that this salvation is applied? I mean, if it's it's not of me at all, how, how does it get applied? Well, he says, through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. Sanctification is being made holy, and being made holy is being set apart for God. It is being separated from sin and set apart unto righteousness. And in this, there is a positional aspect to the idea of being sanctified in the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit sets us apart. He converts our hearts. And so we can turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. for The forgiveness of our sins. And in that very moment are seen as holy before God. Set apart, not in our own holiness, but in the holiness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we who were far off, we who were on the outside... We who are destined for destruction and wrath are instead reconciled to God to live in a right relationship with Him. As we stand in Jesus' righteousness, in His holiness, not because of anything about us, completely independent from our living, but only because of the work of Christ applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, our salvation is secure. But, also, those who stand before God in this positional holiness are also being sanctified in their personal living. On this side of eternity, we're never going to be done with sin. We're still going to wrestle with it and we're going to fail. But if we have truly been made holy in God's sight, the Holy Spirit will be working in us to cause us to hate our sin more and more, to love Jesus more and more, to motivate us and empower us to go to war against our sin, to see that it dies in us. 
that we would pursue holy living in all that we do, which is the evidence of our salvation. Pursuing holiness is not what saves us. It is the evidence that we have already been saved. Because again, we can't save ourselves. So if we've truly been made holy in His sight, He is working in us. And so that's the first means, the work of the Holy Spirit. The second means that Paul mentions here is belief or faith in the truth. That's as opposed to those who we read in the last section who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Believing the truth and so then loving the truth is, is what each person is responsible to. Again, with so many other things that we see. God is sovereign, but we are responsible. And so we are responsible to put our faith in the truth, to trust, to believe the truth. That is our responsibility. It's what we are called to, to have faith. And yet if we have faith, as we saw in Ephesians 2, that faith even still is a gift from God. We're saved by grace through faith and being saved and the grace by which we're saved and the faith through which we're saved are all the gift of God. Faith is, is not just, too, we, we want to make sure we understand what faith is. Faith is not just the acknowledgement of certain truths. Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, I, be, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's God. I believe, I believe he died. I believe he's alive. Yeah, I believe. It's not just the acknowledgement of certain truths, but true faith is the dependency in full surrender to those truths. That's faith. And in context here, as we see in verse 4, 14, this is talking about faith in the gospel truths. The truths that tell us all that we're not good. That we're not good people. I am not a good person. That as we look at the transcending standard of good in God's law, we see that we are all lawbreakers. I am a sinner who has only earned God's wrath. I've not given God the honor that he is worthy of. I have given other things that honor. I have put other things in the place of God in my life. I've sought after my own lust, my own grudges, my own pride. And because God gave me a conscience, I've done things wrong knowing I was doing wrong when I did it. And this is the truth for every last one of us. And so the gospel truth is this bad news that under God's law, we are condemned to wrath, to be separated from God, from his kindness and grace for all eternity. But the word gospel means good news, right? I mean, that's bad news, but there is good news. But we have to know 
and understand the bad news before we can really grasp how good the good news is. And the good news is that God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he lived the perfect life. He was good for us who believe. And he paid for our sins, spilling his blood and suffering God's wrath while he hung on the cross. He obtained righteousness and he met God's just demands and he proved it by rising again. And he is alive today. Now, if you will turn from any false hope that you have, any, any false belief, any, any reliance on anything else but Jesus himself, if you will turn away from that, turn from working for your salvation, turn away from your sin, and instead believe in Jesus to save you. If you will love the truth, believe these gospel truths, that you can do nothing, but Jesus did it all. If you will depend upon him and surrender to his lordship, you will be saved. I have been saved. Despite anything about me, I have been saved. And when I think about that, I think, no wonder John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I mean, the adjective amazing is not amazing enough to describe this grace. I've been saved. And we see in verse 14, it is this salvation through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through faith in the truth that God calls all who believe. That effectual call, that call that will save those who choose, who God chose before the foundation of the earth, those whom he has set his love on. And he did this, he gave this call by getting that truth of the gospel to them, to us who believe. Uh, Paul says here that God called the Thessalonian believers through his and Silas's gospel. In other words, through the gospel that they preached. And they preached it to the Thessalonians. Through the preaching of the gospel, God calls his own to salvation. And to those who have placed saving faith in Christ, who have believed in the truth, their destination is set. Their hope is secure. Nothing can take that away. For as we saw again in verse 13, their salvation that is secure is the salvation that God planned, God initiated, and God accomplished. It is not a salvation we have any part in accomplishing. It's not a salvation that we have any role in. If it were, it would not be secure. Our destination would not be set. Instead, salvation is all of God's power, and so it is secured in God's power. Therefore, those who are saved have a set destination they were called to this salvation, as we read here, so that they may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope of everyone who believes the gospel. This is the hope that Paul encouraged the Thessalonians in back in chapter 1. 
as he sought to encourage them to persevere through their persecution and and all the other afflictions that they were going through. This is the hope of every believer when we will marvel at him and worship him when he returns. For the Thessalonians who wavered when false teaching came in, causing them to, to fear that they missed their rescue from wrath, Paul was encouraging them that they could not miss their rescue from wrath, that they could not lose their hope. But their hope is secure. They're secure in God. No matter what they face, no matter what lies ahead, no matter what suffering life brings, or what other teaching comes along, our feet have been set on the road to glory. We will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will see him in all his greatness and his fame and his power, and it will all shine through us throughout all of the kingdom. That's what we read here in 2 Thessalonians. Last week, or no, the week before. (laughs) His glory will shine through us. This is our hope. This is what drives us. This is one of God's means to persevere us. So many look for hope in other things. So many look to other things to help them persevere in suffering and persevere as as they look for their own security. Even as people talk about heaven, what are the things they talk about? When a loved one is dying, what do they say? Well, they won't feel any pain anymore. Or there'll be all these loved ones that they, they see again. I've heard different times at funerals, oh, they're walking on streets of gold. And for however wonderful all those things may be, they are not wonderful enough to cause us to lay down the treasures of this world that we would be willing to suffer and persevere through pain and persecution. They are not enough to carry us through the pains of death. But instead, what is enough? What is the thing that will carry us? Is this guarantee of glory. It is seeing and being with Is seeing and being with our Lord, shining His glory, the greatness that He is throughout all the kingdom, all the universe, all of this pales. Nothing can compare when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ, that He is what we want. He is our destination. He is what we are drivers and what we live for in everything. See, if this is what our hope is set on, the, the unbelieving world cannot understand. That's why they put their hope in other things. Oh, we're going to see all these people again, which again is great. But it's not great enough. Because the unbelieving world cannot grasp the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the greatness of King Jesus. And so to see King Jesus, to be with him for all eternity, is not that big of a deal. In their mind, other things are more spectacular. Yellow pavement is more spectacular.
No, Jesus is all glorious. To worship him, to share in his glory, that is our hope. This great God, to give us such a wonderful future, to set our destiny as secure in him when we and ourselves are nothing but wretched sinners. It just shows how great he is. That he would be so kind, so loving to give us such a hope, such a secure eternity in him. And in light of this great hope, in verse 15, Paul commands the Thessalonians to stand firm and to hold to what he, Silas, and Timothy taught them, whether they taught them in person or in written letter. Because what they taught them was the truth revealed by God. Now remember what Paul told them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. What they heard from Paul was the very revealed word of God. And so the Thessalonians were to throw off all false teaching, anything that came in conflict to what they heard of the word of God. You're to throw it all off in any form if it did not add up. And so they were to stand firm and hold to the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of their hope of salvation. You know, my friend, we can be tempted to hear something from a prominent teacher on the radio or on TV. We can hear things from a pulpit from this pulpit. We can adhere to something because someone who's been a pastor for so long or someone who's a a seminary professor or whatever it might be says something. But the truth of the matter is this. We are all responsible to know the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word passed down and preserved for us in the writings of the apostle. We all must know it. And I think we have a greater responsibility to know it than even the church in years past because of how much access we have to it. I mean, just go online. Just go to BibleGateway.org.com.org, I forget. And there is just even, I'd say, a glut of translations just in English. Not to mention how many of us I doubt there's anyone here that would not say this. We have our own copies, probably multiple copies, probably even in our own homes, multiple translations. We have such access to God's word. There's no excuse. We are responsible to know our Bibles and hold our teachers accountable to stick to thus saith the Lord, to throw out whatever teaching does not add up, that we do not operate on one's opinions or preferences. And listen, I need accountability to that. You see, God's message in the scripture is clear. The gospel truths are clear. And the great hope for each one who believes on these truths that can never be taken away is clear. So why would we entertain anything else when God has spoken? 
Stand firm. Hold fast to the truths of His Word. And then as Paul commands them to stand firm and hold to the truths, hold to what He taught them, He desired and prayed for God to then sustain them. And so we see in verses 16 through 17, again, his prayerful desire for the Thessalonians, when he said, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul desired and so prayed that God would personally act Again, it says here, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, Paul desired that Jesus himself would personally act, and God our Father. Actually, in the Greek, the word himself is in the uh, emphatic position. It's first in the clause. And it governs both our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. And then it's followed by two verbs, participles, governed by one article, and there in the singular, when it says who loved and who gave. And I know all that's whatever, but all of that is to say that when it says himself, himself being our Lord Jesus Christ, himself being God our Father, they are a singular source of love and the eternal comfort and good hope given by grace. The two of them are a singular source. And this, this demonstrates then to the, the equality of Jesus Christ to God the Father as the one true God. Distinct persons, yet one essence as God. And from them we have love. And we're given this eternal comfort and good hope. And when it says eternal comfort and good hope, both that comfort and hope are pointing to our future. It's an eternal comfort. Nothing can take that away. It's a good hope, not wishful thinking. It's a guarantee. We're secure in this. And Paul wanted God to, through this comfort, the hearts of the Thessalonians and set their hearts on this hope that they would be established or strengthened for every good work and word. Man, that we know that we are going to share in Christ's glory. We're going to shine His glory for all eternity. So let's start living for His glory now with every work and word. Let us know this eternal comfort that we have through everything. We must live in light of this great salvation. The salvation that God alone has provided. And that it should show in everything we say and do. My friend, do you have this hope in Jesus Christ? Do you have the guarantee that you will one day share in His glory? Has God set His love on you, chosen you to be saved through the work of the Holy Spirit, setting you apart? Are you trusting in the truth? Say, how how can I know that God has 
chose me? How can I know that he set his love on me? My friend, do you believe? If you believe, he has set his love on you. If you're trusting the truths of the gospel, if you have faith in the gospel, he has set his love on you. He has chosen you. That's how you know. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will know this eternal destination, this hope that will cause you to persevere, to set your eyes above these temporal sufferings in this life. And know the hope of eternal glory. And again, if you are saved, you are one of his chosen, you have trusted in the truths of the gospel. You know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Then live in light of this great hope. May the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, may God our Father himself, God who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, not because of anything we deserve, but through grace. May he comfort your heart and strengthen your heart in every good work. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.